Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. Now, flexible working is a topic that is A, um, seems to be in the news every single day at the moment, whether it be on the newspapers or uh, or elsewhere. Um, but flexible working is just such a big topic and one that is filled with emotion. Um, and that emotion could be the ease and relief it can bring to some, or maybe the suspicion and the scrutiny that it can bring for others. Um, and there's also a risk that by talking about flexible working, it might exclude those whose role or job isn't possible to be done in a flexible way. Um, and at the same time, I'm going to run that risk uh, because uh, today's guest, I think, is really interesting in that they're looking to to challenge or to reframe the narrative that sits around flexible working. And as regular listeners of this podcast will know, doing that from a perspective of data and research is right up my street. So my guest today is a researcher, a practitioner, and a senior lecturer at Manchester. At Manchester. Oh, let me try that one again. <laughs> my guest today is a researcher, practitioner, and senior lecturer at the Manchester Metropolitan University. And I'm very, very glad that she's joining me today. So let's get our guest on the air, which is Dr. Crystal Wilkinson. Hi, Crystal. Hi there. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm delighted to, to have you on as a, as a guest and I've really enjoyed our off-air kind of conversation to, to get the frame and everything set up. So I'm really, really excited um, about today. Me too. Now we, good, that's good to hear. <laughs> um, now we're recording this podcast in January um, and uh, as per usual, we will open with an unexpected yet innocuous <laughs> question. So my unexpected yet innocuous question for you is New Year's resolutions what do you think? Oh, um, yeah, I really don't want to do them anymore. So in the past, I have made them often and often failed. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm much of the opinion now that, um, you know, if you want to change something up, do it on the day that you want to change it up. Don't, don't put the pressure on yourself to um, to have to make a, yeah. make a big change just because it's the start of a new year. Just because it's the start of the year. So there's a, a lady who I follow on, on Twitter called Fiona McBride, and she um, put out a post around intentions um, and talking about uh, the intent, you know, sort of, sort of what are your intentions for, for, not necessarily for a year, but what are your intentions for a day, a week, a month, um, those things. So not resolutions per se, but, uh, but more intentions. Um, and my wife and I get together at the start of each year and we say, right, what are our intentions for this year? So sometimes they're kind of, boring stuff like hang curtains in the office or um lay grass seed on this particular part of the garden and sometimes they're they're a bit a bit more exciting um, <laughs> but yeah I, I like the idea of, of intentions rather than resolutions yeah i like it well i think the um i think in in the workplace it, it, there must be like a, a lot of pressure as well around january time to to make changes you know kind of that uh, with that classic new year new start thing yeah um and, and flexible working i guess i don't know for a lot of workplaces from what i from what i read and from uh, talking to my clients flexible working is high on on that list of things that um they know they want to look at but they're not necessarily i guess sure how to go about it um and um and, and i think that one of the challenges that I really enjoyed about reading when I was reading some of your work 
um, was about the idea of work-life challenges or work-life dilemmas um, rather than kind of work-life balance or um, or flexible working being something that is only for you know those that might be um, parents or carers or all those things so yeah I just wondered what made you choose that frame around um, work-life challenges or work-life dilemmas. Uh, <laughs> Try to put my suit back in. Work-life dilemmas. Yeah, well, um, so the 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 research was was from my PhD, but um, when we were writing hmm. kind of some of the academic outputs from it, um, there's, they always want to obviously know the, the contribution to theory, um, and the work-life balance literature um, when it's talking about problems with the work-life balance, it's usually talking about work-life conflict. Um, and work-life conflict is actually fairly narrow, narrowly defined in the literature as kind of time-based conflict or strain-based conflict. Um, and yeah, although the concept is work-life, um, com- sorry, the concept is work-life conflict um, and work-life balance, quite often it, it is taken to be work-family conflict or work-family balance. Okay. Um, so what we, we found in our, um, or what I found in my interviews that we then went on to write the paper based on, um, was that people who don't fit the narrow definition of family that they think the work-life balance stuff is for, which is usually very, very young children and occasionally elder relatives if you're a carer um, or if you've mm-hmm. got somebody who's got a disability and you're a carer, um, they just don't think they're entitled to take part in it. So the work-life challenge that we identified was kind of when you have, when to assert your, your desire for any kind of work-life balance, you've got to challenge normative assumptions in the organisation about who actually does need support and who qualifies for support and who's entitled to support. Um, and then the dilemmas was um, like the internal dilemmas, the internal discussions that you might have about investing in those different domains. So for the particular sample that we were looking at in, or I was looking at in my PhD research, it was young managers and professionals. Um, and so mm-hmm. there was sort of like an internal dilemma about, well, how much do I push for time off for my work-life balance versus how much do I work all the hours because it might progress my career? And, and while I haven't got children, should I take advantage of not having children to, um, to really push on the career front? So it's just kind of extending the conversation a little bit to cover more people in the workforce. And I've kind of carried on with that um, interest really in, in further research that I've done. So um, I'm looking at complex fertility journeys at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's kind of two different ways that that factors in because people going through fertility treatment, they do have those time conflicts that people have who have children. You know, if you're going to having to go to fertility clinics often and you're having to um, you know, do lots of kind of research around um, the, your, your specific condition and the specific treatments, there's a lot of kind of logistical work um, and mm. that's, that's involved in that, which does take time. So you do have the time-based work-life conflict. But you also don't have that sense of entitlement and that legitimacy because quite often there's not any policies around fertility treatment or it's very limited what what um, support there is. So I think I think the notion of these kind of challenges and dilemmas does kind of carry through as well. And um, you know the idea of if I disclose that I'm having fertility treatment, do then people assume that I'm not interested in career development anymore um, and kind of discount me from things? So yeah, just useful concepts. And, yeah, yeah. Oh, there is so much in there I want to ask about. Um, okay, so you said that commonly in the literature it's framed as uh, so work life balance is framed is fl- is ah, I really need to put my teeth back in today. <laughs> so 
um, you said that within the research, work-life balance is seen as a conflict, and it's a conflict of time. And then uh, there's um, like an, an, an is it an implication? Is it is it an implicit assumption that it's about families and and caring either for long, young children or potentially elder relatives, um, or is it an explicit thing? Would you say? Um, I think it's. <laughs> It's difficult. So um, a lot of the um, policies that we have um, for flexible working, for example, being the obvious one, um, mm. the origins in legislation was a work family thing. So initially, you know, the right to request flexible working was for if you had, were a parent or a carer, and then only later was it extended to anybody. Um, mm. And I think, you know, if we think about other maternity protections and other um, benefits and time off that you get related to family. I think there's quite often normative assumptions in organisations that this flexible working, the flexibility, flexible working, um, family friendly provisions, you know, that it's, it's for a certain demographic group. Um, and the literature, I mean, the literature is just that the, the origins of the work life, of work life balance come from kind of work family balance. So, um, and a lot of the studies, mm. they still, they focus on working parents as, you know, it's, it's much rarer that you'll have other groups specifically of the focus, or if there are a mixed sample, it's usually the um, the parental challenges or the caring challenges that are um, kind of foreground in, in the discussions. So we just did um, a replication of my PhD study basically in the pandemic context, um, but looking mm -hmm. specifically at people who were transitioning to home working, so the people that live alone and now the home working, um, to talk about their kind of work-life interface. And quite often, you know, the, the, the literature on the work-life interface, it was talking about, everything was about homeschooling um, and having very young children and the challenges for working parents. And I absolutely think it's right that we do have that focus because absolutely these people have huge challenges to overcome, but it's this idea that we don't just completely overlook everybody else as well um, and that there might be different challenges for different groups. And quite often, I think, when, when we spoke to, to people about kind of like special leave that was in their organisations for working parents. Um, mm. They were supportive of that, but they were like, but what needs to be, people need to be aware of is if you're taking work off one group, somebody else has to pick it up unless that workload is reduced. So um, they didn't think it was anything malicious, anything intentional. It's just, you know, what about us? Okay. Okay. Um... So can I unpick some of the different terminology that we've played with so far then? So we had um, work-life balance then, which um, is often framed as work-life conflicts, which is, you said, to do with time or strain. Well, yeah, I mean, so, they're, they're kind of the opposite. So we should, everyone yeah. wants to have a work-life balance. And, you know, a yeah. useful definition of work-life balance is um, an individual having sufficient control and autonomy over when where how they work to enable them to fulfill their responsibilities inside and outside work so that's um a quote that i've used before from visser and williams in 2006 um so okay. so hang on sorry can we can we do that one again because i thought that, that was really nicely done okay um so it was so work-life balance according to um that 2007 paper was so it's, yeah um work-life balance according to visser and williams in 2006 is an, indiv Sex, sorry. Yeah. an individual has sufficient control and autonomy over when, where and how they work to enable them to fulfil their responsibilities both inside and outside paid work. 
Okay. So that's work-life balance. So work-life conflict is when you don't have that. So if you haven't got sufficient control, you haven't, you haven't got autonomy. Basically, you can't fulfill your responsibilities inside and, and outside of work. So there's a conflict there. So that's what the work-life okay. conflict is. And, and usually they're talking about work conflicting with family. So the time in work is taking away time that you could be with your family. Um, okay. Or strain. It's something to talk about strain. So if you're stressed, if you're worried, you know, if there's, there's issues at home, then that can, can take away... You know, emotional bandwidth that you could be devoting to your family and stuff. So, so people are, and they talk about spillover sometimes. So you can have negative spillover. So if you're stressed at work, if you're worried, um, you know, you're stressing and you're worried at home as well. Okay, all right. And and I, I guess and maybe this is why you've chosen that definition. But what I really like about that definition is it's agnostic of your situation. Yeah, it's just so a, it's, it doesn't. It, no, go on. No, I was just saying, yeah, it's, it, it's just that quite often it's it, in the way it's applied in, in, in research is that it's not. But yeah, that, that, um, that definition would be applicable to, to anybody in any situation. Hmm, okay. Uh, okay, so that's work-life balance and work-life conflicts. Then. Is that the rhetoric? So... <laughs> I keep talking. So, go on. I'm just thinking it's, like the, it's the rhetoric and the reality, isn't it? So the rhetoric, you know, the, the idea behind this is that, but in reality, quite often policies and line managers and even individuals are not thinking it's that definition they're, they're thinking it's about people balancing work with family so if i haven't got a family then i haven't got any entitlement to it i know i agree completely and, and i like the um i mean I, I want to come back to legitimacy later i know you were talking about that in terms of the work that you've been doing on complex facility journeys um but legitimacy and disclosure, I thought were two areas I'd love to come back and, and, and look at a little bit more, whether that be, you know, we can talk specifically about the the work that you've been doing um, more recently. And then I might want to, if we can, see if we can broaden those two ideas of legitimacy and disclosure right, to potentially other um, other circumstances or um, or context as well. Yeah. Um, so when we talk, when you talk about work-life challenges and dilemmas, then, so you describe the dilemmas bit being the dilemmas that line managers may face in an organisation when deciding or weighing up the either the the, the granting or the denial of of, a, of, a, of an approach to flexible working. Is that right? Um, not quite. I mean, when I was talking okay. about work-life challenges and dilemmas, the dilemmas I was yes. talking about was like the internal dilemmas of an employee about, you know, what, how much time do I invest in different domains? Um, you know, it, 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 for example, if, if people are um, really going to push for work-life balance, then they're potentially going to take less time you know, to dedicate less less time to, to their work. So, so we were talking about young professionals who were sort of saying, mm. I'm kind of, I think it's kind of unfair in a way that I have to pick up all the Christmases and all the holidays and I have to work late because the the working mums, you know, people with children, they, they get to go. But on the flip side, they're probably not going to get promoted because they're not putting in as, as all the hours that I am. So there were some, di- there's kind of some dilemmas there around. Okay. Around, I suppose the, the universal assumption that everybody always wants work life balance, maybe. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. which depending on your career stage, it might be more or less important to you relative to other employee benefits, including development, training, and development, and so on. Yeah. Okay. 
I think that's coming up quite a bit now with the whole flexibility stigma argument. You know, that, that it, if, 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 if it's a case of particular people are perceived as being less dedicated to the jobs because they're working from home, for example, or then, then are you going to have, um, you know, people sort of facing these dilemmas, these internal dilemmas about, you know, their, their, their time investment is one, but also like where they work or, or you know, I'm, I'm just fluffing all of this. Sorry. No, 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 not at all. No, you're, you're, no. It, it, you're, what you're saying is making me really think. So it's it's fantastic, um, and and so those dilemmas then are dilemmas that the lot all the different com, all the different parties in a flexible working approach may may need to ponder. Yeah. Whether that be the dilemma for the individual around what might this say about me, or how might this be viewed, or what might the impact be on my you know how i'm viewed my credibility my future career opportunities my development those things but there's also dilemmas i guess for for the for the line managers around kind of you know do i trust that they'll still get the job done will they still perform at the at the required level will they be washing homes under the hammer all day um so there's dilemmas there for the managers but i guess there's also dilemmas for the organizations so like do do we trust that people can do that do we have the right infrastructure in place can we keep our information secure and safe if we've got people working in in different ways uh, remote ways or flexible ways or going to coffee shops and working from there is that going to keep our you know our data safe and secure so there's dilemmas for a number of different aspects i suppose that's what i'm thinking anyway yeah so. absolutely yeah i think it's got huge huge opportunities you know all of the flexible working um, and a lot of the issues that we're, um, we're kind of coming up, up against in the, the complex fertility journeys project, particularly, you know, is if you're giving people more flexibility, they have, you know, they, it's that exactly that, that quote from Mr. and Williams, it's the control and autonomy over when, where, and how you work. So, you know, if, if everybody has a degree of flexibility, then, you know, you don't need a special reason. You don't need legislative protection, you know, you, you, to, to be able to kind of fit in a, a variety of different non-work challenges or, or things that you things that you've got going on. So kind of part of me is thinking that if, if everybody is, is given flexibility then it's more beneficial for, for um for kind of people who are going through particular issues that maybe there's not existing employment protection for. But also the people that are potentially gonna to have to cover for them, you know, they they feel that it's fair because they're getting to do the same. Hmm. Yeah, no, so it, it, it got me thinking about, um, and, and at the risk of, um, at the risk of doing a, a shameless um, self-promotion style plug. So um, I remember my team at the moment is, is going uh, through a process of, of buying their first house. Um, and uh so on the on, there was a particular day where a lot of there was a flurry of activity, um, and and not much work was done that day, um, and and so they suggested working extra hours to to cover for that, you know, to to make up for the time that that was lost. Um, and I said, well, as long as you you know achieve what you need to achieve and get done what you need to get done, then I I don't expect that to happen. And also, you know, kind of buying a house is a once in a uh, not once in a lifetime that's a bit much but th th that's a rare event so if 
if you know if if for that one day you've you've been you know, sorting out some really important life things then that's okay and go and sort out your really important life things because they need sorting out and you know i can i can cover off whatever you needed to get done today if they're you know for the urgent and or important or deadline based things um and and that's yeah and, and that for me was a quite an easy decision to make um but i'm conscious that i'm probably coming at that from a slight place of privilege in that um we work 100% remotely already a lot of the work we do doesn't require being physically somewhere or, or in a particular place um and maybe because my team is is relatively small it also affords me a bit of privilege or luxury in that way as well but um yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now. Sorry. <laughs> no, it makes me think of this concept of rhythm intelligence that I've been kind of playing around with with recently. So, mm. um, I first read about rhythm intelligence in a, an article um, on maternity management in SMEs, so small, small to medium sized enterprises, that um, some colleagues yeah. of mine wrote at the um, Centre for Decent Work and Productivity at Manchester Met Uni. Um, so it's Julia Ralph's and colleagues, um, and they were talking about how you know managers who have an awareness of the different rhythms, so the rhythms of work, but also the, the non-work rhythms of their employees, um, and are actually kind of tuned into to thinking about the adjustments to the job that might be needed, which for some it might be quite small or quite temporary. Um, you know, the, this idea that you know if we co-create some solutions, then people are going to be more productive, they're going to be more engaged in the long run. Um, you know, that quite often when I think about um, some of the, the family-friendly stuff and the right to request flexible working, you're thinking about these massive big adjustments so someone's going on maternity leave for, for a year or you know somebody's hmm. a permanent change to to um to part-time working or to annual hours or something that's you know this one-off event um and when we think about like accommodating disability you, you talk about like reasonable adjustments or make reasonable adjustments to the job um hmm. which might you know for, for, for a long considerable period of time um, but quite often with, with this notion of kind of rhythm intelligence, it is, it's just about thinking about there's a certain days for, for everyone when they're going to be a little bit, little bit less productive or a period of time. It's something like fertility treatment, you know, it might just be one cycle of treatment where somebody's going to be really, their performance might be quite compromised or it might not, depending on, you know, how they react to the medications um, and, and other factors. But, you know, just for a specific period of time. And it's similar if there's... Um, if someone's grieving or if somebody's getting a divorce mm. or you know so, something that might, might be a, a, a period of time but if you get into this idea of thinking that we'll, we'll support people with these fluctuations in their non-work life um make, make a, bit, a bit of accommodation where we can then we can keep these people and they'll probably be more engaged because they feel, they'll feel that they've been treated well and supported um, and they're not kind of othered they're not this kind of problem because if your whole team are aware that, well, if I get divorced or if I become unwell, um, you know, I, they're likely to treat me in the same way. Um, mm. Then it might, it might overcome some of those issues of, you know, us versus them. Why are the parents getting all the support and I'm not? Um, why are, why am I always be the one that has to, you know, pick up, pick up the slack or feeling that only certain groups of people have protection because it's linked to legislation? Mm. Um, so what would be good if it's okay? Um, uh, could you share with me a, a link to either the paper or papers that you mentioned around rhythm intelligence? Because I think that'd be really useful yeah. to to put some links into the um, into the show notes for those if that's okay. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things that I was wondering was, um, so on one hand, it could be quite easy to say that um, by, uh, so I'm thinking of the outcomes and the results that you were discussing uh, briefly just then around things like people being more engaged, they're more likely to stick around, um, support, you know, giving that, that compassion and support through that, uh, through that that period of um, you know, where the rhythm's interrupted to when the rhythm then comes back again um, or, or maybe you return to more of a, a normal cadence or a normal rhythm that uh, it could lead to the to these outcomes at an organize you know either at an individual productivity or organizational level um, and is there any research or does the research support that are there any findings that support that doing things like um, you know paying more attention to things like rhythm intelligence and or um, broadening the definition or the, the view of flexible working from familial or caring based frames to just much, much broader. Does that lead to those kind of outcomes or do, what research is there to suggest that it does lead to some of those outcomes at an individual or organisational level? Um, I, I can't point to, to many kind of papers that I've read on this. I mean, the rhythm intelligence paper that that kind of in the background of my thinking was only published last year mm. um okay uh, but i mean i've we, we interviewed 80 men and women on our complex fertility's journey um and you could actually you know absolutely see within those and we did um biographical narrative interviewing so basically the interviews started with just tell me your story of how your fertility journey has been navigated alongside your work um and people mm. just told us their stories and the amount of people that that talked about um you know, there was no policy, there was no support. I didn't feel able to tell my manager um, how they then tried to navigate it on their own or how they struggled to navigate it on their own and it ended up with lots of sick leave, going part-time, leaving the job, um, changing the focus of their career. So some people in academia, for example, said, I can't do research. I'm just gonna have to, you know, move to, okay. to a different different bit of the job. So um, in terms of um, kind of the, 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 the impact of not being supported on their careers, their commitments to their employer, the psychological contract stuff, um, yeah. days off, you know, all of the kind of markers that we would say about a business case for, for, for supporting something in terms of absenteeism, presenteeism, leaving the job, going part-time, productivity, you know, you, we could absolutely see in these narratives and the, 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 to a lesser extent, we did have examples of people who were well supported um, and it's this idea of like temporary reasonable adjustments so these were, well, I would say, rhythm intelligent managers. These were people who were saying, right, I don't know much about this. I don't know much about fertility treatment. Having discussed it with you, I realise that you don't even really know what to expect, that your body might react quite differently. So I'll come along with you. We'll have some meetings with HR. I'll learn a bit more. Tell me what you want to tell me about it and we'll we'll negotiate it as we go. We'll, we'll try things. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. The people that were given extra flexibility. Um, but quite often all this, you know, to have those kind of things, you need people to disclose. And when you've got um, a organisational context where there's no policy around fertility treatment, there's no, mm. um, there's nothing that says that if I were to disclose, it would be, I'd be entitled to anything or it'd be favourably, um, favourably met with, um, then yeah. it, it becomes, becomes very, very difficult. Hmm. 
I mean, I'm not a big fan of policy anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and uh, I, I have my own biases to um, to, to to maintain uh, control of, I, I guess. Um, I mean, to be honest, for me, in, in my mind, the ultimate, you know, supportive policy around fertility treatment would be, you know, treat it almost like a disability for a period of time, even if it's just temporary, in that you might have to make reasonable adjustments. And that's because everybody's experience is so, so different going through this in terms of how many cycles of, of treatment they might need, um, whether, you know, their reactions to the medications, what their job was like before and how that intersects. Um, you know, I think any, there's quite a lot of interest in fertility policies at the moment, and which is great to see, absolutely great to see. But quite often you see it, it's like, you know, somebody can have five days per cycle or five days off per year. And it's like some people don't need days off, they need a bit of flexibility. Um, some people yeah. might just need an adjustment to their workload because it, the, the medications that they're on might impact their memory or, you know, for, for whatever that particular person's um, experience is. So, yeah, well, what, what you need in a policy basically is just... A, pol a policy to be there or there to be some presence on the website for example so people think this is something i can talk about at work this is something where i'm entitled you know there's a sense of sense of entitlement some legitimacy to actually having a conversation with my manager um and in the absence of any legislative protection around this issue people don't know that <laughs> you know they think i've got no entitlement there's no legislation there's no law that says i can have time off there's no law that says anything so if there's no policy then i probably think i'm not entitled to anything if there is a policy it's great but the risk with policies is that they are shutting people down. So they're saying you're entitled to three days. So that's it. It's three days when, you know, just a discussion with your manager of what you actually need might be a lot more um, appropriate and supportive. Yeah, because it, it it can be. Um, oh, I, I can I can understand it being a, a tricky area to navigate and both around um, fertility journeys and around other kind of areas uh, as well, because um, you mentioned grief earlier on, and, and grief is something that affects so many different people in, in so many different ways. Um, and, and, and often what organisations will have is a particular policy that says if it's a certain classification of individual or certain classification of loss, mm -hmm. then that entitles you to so many days or... Um, uh, and I've always really struggled with those things because you just don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really hard to, as an organisation, to say if X, then Y. You know, if immediate family member, then Y days. If um, you know, distant relative, then X day. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it's, and, and I, I, you know, what policies do is provide to a certain degree that clarity and that protection because if you go the other way which is um i don't know what would i what do i mean by if you go the other way so the um yeah if you go if you go the other way which is you know have what you want whenever you want it then there's no control for the organization in that either and i think sometimes it's those ends of spectrums that are, that are played out yeah I think rather than somewhere that's kind of more in in the middle yeah I think for, Sorry, I was thinking for line managers as well so what we seem to see in, in our research certainly was that the really experienced managers that have dealt with a lot of maternities and a lot of um, bereavements and a lot of people with disabilities and health conditions 
they were much more confident at not needing a policy and flexing it and going a bit above and beyond what a policy said or you know well it's obvious i'd just do this even without a policy but um, i think sometimes the newer line managers particularly they really need a policy you know because they they're not as confident to just make those those judgments hmm. yeah i suppose it's about training as well though isn't it if, if you've got really really good line manager training and support so hr support so people want to think you know there's a base baseline policy here um you know there might be a baseline fertility policy for example that says you know you can have a few days off but if there was a line after that you know or more at your discretion or contact hr for a discussion for a case-by-case discussion um but obviously then i'm assuming that it's an organization that has hr that that has lots of policies and quite often you know a lot of people work in small to medium-sized enterprises and we had some people um in schools um, and i know there's a lady that's um, running an organization called fertility issues and teaching that's talking about you know this is a huge largely female dominated profession that quite often yeah. you know there's there isn't much in the way of policies and procedures or, or there's hr department often that you can that you can contact um, and sometimes it's you know head teachers often to make these decisions when they're not not necessarily got, got specialist knowledge or training so um you know that's one thing that we're, we're trying to think look at in our research particularly is um the range of job contexts that people might be in um and you know, the, in, in, the, in academia, for example, there's quite a lot of people like PhD students or people on temporary contracts and things where it's like, I've not got one employer or I've not got, you know, the, the it's not even an employment contract, it's a, it's a, I'm a student, mm. um, but, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm, I'm you know, it's, 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 it's all, all, the, all the complexities there around um, not only your, the, the specifics of the personal situation that you're trying to navigate, but the specifics of your employment context as well. So I've just done a paper on... Um, so shoehorn this one in there <laughs> just just published yeah, a paper yeah. on uh, perinatal mental health and employment um mm-hmm. which is um, mental illness in pregnancy and post-birth and um talking about kind of ecological systems theory and rhythms so the, the rhythm intelligence stuff is in there um but this idea that you know our experience isn't just about the, the workplace micro setting it's it's the workplace but it's also any other um micro settings that are um, important here so in the fertility study for example fertility clinics the operating hours their forms of communication all that's going to have an impact on, on how you balance your fertility treatment with your work mm. um sorry my phone's just gone um sorry. Uh, and then but the, you know that's within other other levels of the system as well and, and the kind of the exo level is, is where all your your regulations are and your industry standards and you know, you, you, you're, you're working within multiple different levels of a system at any one time and the, your unique positioning within that and your own history and the history of your manager and the history of your organisation and the history of your national context in terms of the policies um, that are available, is, it all has an impact. So, you know, the right to request flexible working is a key, key piece of legislation that's, you know, arguably open to anyone. It's not just people with children. Um, it's not just people with children, but um, you've only got the legislation that is just the right to request and your employer can turn it down for any number of reasons. Um, and access to provisions, even when you are entitled to them, your manager can block that access, um, so like, like blocking a promotion or something. So there's, you're always within multiple different systems that you're trying to navigate at any one time. Mm. Yes. And, and, and that's... 
yeah, it's hard um, because that's it's, it's that systemic bit often that's the that's the really tricky one, um, and and how trying to make it so that those systems can be compatible with each other. You know, so so can the clinics opening hours also um, you know line up with the system of the working practices of the organisation and also line up with the deadlines of work that need to be delivered and and and, and. Mm. so yeah no, I'm with you. Um, so if, if I was a, if I was a listener to this podcast then, um, and I'm thinking, all right then, Phil, all right then, Crystal, you've, you've talked about, um, these different situations or the, the, the different, um, whether that be the fertility journeys or the non-parental um, or non-familial or non-caring responsibilities in the in the individuals in there, we're we're going to have a look at our um, flexible working, or we're going to be be having a look at our, our approach to um, to how how we go about these areas. Um, what would your advice be? Um, I think at an organisational level, uh, you know, if you've got the, the the time and the energy to do it, then consulting with your staff. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, employee voice is a, is a huge thing. You know, people are more likely to get on board with things if they've been involved in, in the design. So understanding the the profile of your workforce, maybe, um, you know, look at the age range, look at um, other kind of demographic factors for your workforce. And then, yeah, try and have a discussion. You, know, you could say we're thinking of introducing um, or looking at our flexibility policy. You know, what do you, what do you think of it already? Do you feel entitled to... Um, any element of flexibility do you want any, any element of flexibility what element of flexibility you know is it would it be temporal flexibility which around you know the, the timings of work would it be around your location flexibility would it be about functional flexibility you know that, that people just want to, to kind of learn different skills to, to make their, their jobs more interesting um and i kind of i guess kind of understanding what what people want what their views are of existing policies whether they think things are fair um whether they feel that their managers are approachable to talk about mm-hmm. non-work things. So I suppose if you get a picture of, of kind of the, the current um, the current perceptions of your workforce, the current needs of your workforce, um, and then trying to think about what is feasible, you know, for certain, as you mentioned before, you know, certain kind of industries, certain types of jobs, certain types of flexibility might not be possible, but you might be able to do something with something else. Or if things aren't an option, if you actually go back and you explain very clearly why, you know, we've given this some thought, but this is not possible because people can feel that at least they've had a voice, at least they've been, it's been considered and they've, they've had um, you know, the opportunity to say. Because I think, um, you know, procedural justice, your, your kind of sense that it's the, the, why, the, why, the way things are, are the way they are, um, that you understand the decision making behind that can be more more powerful sometimes than actually the out, the outcomes so yeah, yeah. I suppose I'd, I'd also encourage any individual to kind of think about their own work work life balance think about you know their, their kind of life course so um going back to the my phd research these these kind of issues around people assuming that young managers and professionals without children don't have any non-work time demands um, mm-hmm. and they were quite often thinking that 
And I don't want to be single and solo living forever. You know, I want to meet a partner and I want to have a child one day maybe. And how do I meet a partner when I'm working really, really long hours? How, I can't, you know, I arrange dates and then I can't turn up because it's unpredictable. Or my, my employer keeps sending me around the country because I'm the person who's, you know, um, unencumbered by children, you know, so I'm, I'm the one that will get sent yeah. on jobs. Um, and it's like, you know, so especially if you're encouraging people to think about their their non-work priorities, um, where they are in the life course and whether that's likely to change, um, whether something maybe isn't that important to them now, but it, it would, it's likely to become. Um, because so one, one of the issues that we had in, in, with that research is that people genuinely thought they weren't entitled and they genuinely thought that their needs were less important than other people because the, the, the narratives are there that, that parents have it harder and parents need the support. But, so quite often they, these individuals weren't only not asking for flexibility, but they were offering to work late, they were offering to cover at Christmas sometimes because of this perception that other people had it harder. Some of them, and some people were being expected to be like that and they didn't think it was fair, but they didn't feel that they could, they could say no. Um, and I guess if an organisation was to ask everybody, there might be some people that quite wanted to work Christmas, or you know, could you pay more for the people who work Christmas so that there's an incentive? Um, or you know, find other ways to um, make the, the, the kind of the, re the overall reward package more attractive. You know, so, so if, if people are always taking on extra work, could they have some say in what extra work <laughs> that is, is, is taken on? Could they have some, some work that they find more challenging as opposed to just more of the stuff they don't like? Can you, can you switch things around or just take off some non-essential non-essential tasks if, if people mm. are often to cover for other people? I keep feeling like I'm just waffling on. Apologies. No, you're not waffling on at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, no, no, apology, uh, no apology needed. Um, yeah, you keep making me think of different things, um, which is which me which leads me to think that you're not waffling. Um, because <laughs> if you were waffling, I, I wouldn't be. It, it wouldn't make me think. Oh, what about this? And oh, what about that? And uh, oh, what about the other? Um, um, so one of the things that you that you've mentioned, I guess, kind of implicitly a couple of times when you talked about disclosure, um, and also then when you were saying about. The importance of consulting and asking people. Um, there's a there's a risk, I guess, to people that you're, we're asking them to be vulnerable. So we're asking them to um, to share what might be going on for them outside of, of work in terms of their 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 personal priorities in, in whatever way their personal priorities may be. Um, uh, and in, in some of your work, you talk about work based vulnerabilities. Um, and I wonder if you could tell me a bit more about those. Yeah, well, um, in, in the paper that came, one of the papers that came from my PhD, um, we mm. were talking about kind of, it was particularly, again, the, the solo living manager and professionals, um, and this yeah. idea that when you haven't got a role as a parent or as a spouse, sometimes your, your main role in life and your main sense of identity could be through your work. So you might be more vulnerable to some disappointments at work. So if people criticize your work or if there's um, a, you don't, you don't get a promotion or you don't get a particular project or you get treated negatively, um, there's, that's kind of your main sense of identity is being attacked. Um, and also you might not have, I mean, this, this idea of the, um, the work-life conflict, you know, there's a set of literature about work-life enrichment 
where having one role in life can actually kind of be beneficial to you, know, you can have skills that you can of having one domain that will be useful in the other domain, but also just having somebody at home that you can vent to, that you can talk about your disappointments at work, mm. put things in perspective, or just stop you dwelling on stuff. So in the pandemic study, these, these people who live alone who are now home working, quite often they were really worried about the pandemic and living alone and, you know, what if something happened to me and nobody found me? Um, mm. And they're dwelling on that and that's kind of maybe making them work longer hours because they're like, well, I need some, I need distractions and they're working really long hours and there's nobody to uh, to offload to about their concerns and then if there is something that's that's upsetting them at work and, and that include fairness you know I feel like I'm picking up and having to work around the people who have got mm. children who have, have you know got more more yeah, flexibility or... yeah so I can't do my job because I can't get hold of it and they're stressing and they're stewing and they've got, they've got nobody to tell at home and nobody to say it doesn't matter just you know have a hug and, you know or you know feed, feed your child or whatever it is that, that might just Although it's a burden, it's a task that you have to do, it, it, it diverts your attention to something else. Uh, so, interesting stuff. Okay. I, I find it interesting anyway. No, no, I, I agree completely. And I think the, um, I mean, I, I get fascinated with identity anyway. Um, and, and both the identities that we choose to take and the identities that are then put on us. Um, and, and you talk about, I think the example you gave earlier on was brilliant about you don't have any, so therefore you can. Mm. And then you don't have any, insert whatever that is, caring responsibilities, for example, therefore you can travel the country. Mm. Um, uh, which runs the risk of negating any other relationships that that individual may hold and value or, or activities that that individual may hold or value that are based around where they've chosen to yeah. live <laughs> and then by sending them across the country they can't play for their football team or join you know or go to their their club or or you know, whatever yeah see their family or friends or whatever that may be because um yeah they they because they don't have familial or caring responsibilities then then they can um which then goes on to affect things like legitimacy and disclosure because you, you, you know yeah yeah definitely so and I think you said something really, really like important and profound before, which is something that we've certainly been grappling with in our fertility study, particularly, which is about, mm. you know, there is a vulnerability in disclosure. So, you know, if we're, if we're encouraging people that you're only going to get support if you disclose, you know, if you tell us, tell us about these, your fertility treatment or tell us, um, and mental health is the big thing. You know, there's like people, mm. you have to, it, mental health is, it's an invisible it's an invisible disability. Um, you know, to an extent, if you've got um, a severe, a severe episode of, of a mental illness, it might be visible to other people through your behaviour. But for a lot of it, it's potentially concealable. Um, to mm. get support, you need to tell people about it. And there's huge campaigns to disclose, and it's good to talk and tell. But the, the you know, the, 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 the statistics and the literature on discrimination based on mental health is considerable. So you know, there is evidence out there that. People who disclose might get treated badly, uh, whether they would have got, you know, the discrimination anyway, because maybe their performance would have dropped, you know, but it's, 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 it is difficult stuff. And with the fertility stuff, you know, a lot of people in our, in our um, study didn't want to tell the manager because, well, it's private, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, people don't tell their manager about their sex life and, to get pregnant, but we kind of have to tell them about our intimate life and, um, you know, that, that we're having, that, that we're, we're having fertility issues and, then I don't want people to ask for updates. You know, I don't want to keep having to explain, oh no, this cycle's failed. Or, um, p- 
perceptions that you're not interested in your job anymore. Um, and that's been a feature of literature on maternity and work for a while. But with maternity, mm. you, you're pregnant. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be visible at some point and you're going to have a baby, hopefully, you know, unless, unless something goes, goes horribly wrong. Um, whereas with fertility treatment, the, the, the odds of actually getting a live baby at the end of it are not always as, as strong as people think. So you're basically disclosing wanting to be a mum and all the perceptions that, you know, that, that come with that in terms of, well, you're not committed to your career and all of that, when you might not even end up with a baby. So it's, um, it is, it has absolutely, it's, it's about what should be in the domain of work and what is private. Um, but if you don't disclose it, then you've got to navigate it yourself and you've got to find ways to, to conceal. Um, and there's a really nice paper that I like by a lady called Caroline Gattrell, um, on maternity management in work and it's secrecy, silence and super performance um, and it's about you know trying to conceal that you're pregnant when you do disclose trying to downplay the pregnancy and keep it all controllable so that nobody can say you're less committed to your job or you're no no you're not not good at your job and super performance is people actually feeling like they have to work even harder than they did before so that people don't think that they're slacking <laughs> or so that, mm. yeah. so it's like there's, there's the, in terms of emotions you know the the the, the whole spectrum of emotions that you have to navigate when you choose to disclose or not and then with something like a fertility journey you keep having to make those decisions because it's like well do i tell her each new cycle i could tell her i could not tell um i could tell about a bit of the cycle or not if there's a miscarriage maybe i keep that silent but i've told them about the treatment or you know there's, there's so many different dynamics it's um, yeah it's, it's difficult yeah. it's difficult to know what the you know what the i can't think of any from from this study so far and, and the conversations that we've had with, with various kind of stakeholders that are in, involved in both the fertility side and kind of the employment side i can't really think of anything other than try to still say in that you know policies of training for managers try and make it an environment where there there is more awareness about fertility treatment so that managers are, are aware of what IVF is for example that the stages that people go through what it what it entails put information on your website about um, sources of support do a, maybe a blog maybe there could be a um, buddy scheme or um, like a support group thing that people can if it's a buddy scheme you might be able to keep that more more anonymous people, not many other people might know that you're, you're taking part in it, mm. to, to offer some elements of support whilst people decide, can they or can't they tell their manager? You know, and are there provisions for occupational health? Are there provisions through like a counselling that work could, could be involved? You know, is there, are there other routes to getting some support around this issue other than always telling your manager? Um, or somebody else, can you, you know, if, if you've got a really bad relationship with your manager, can you maybe speak to uh, mental health first aid or can you to HR as a, as a starter uh, but it's, it is really mm. difficult it is really difficult because you do it is putting yourself on the line and you disclose anything like this um, that you might not be supportive yeah I, I think um, I think a lot of things uh, so <laughs> one of the things that I'm thinking is um, that I guess on one hand, it's like, well, do we need uh, do we need something for every eventuality? So, um, whether that be uh, uh, fertility treatments, um, grief. Um, I know there are puppy policies for those that are, are taking on new pets. Um, you could have one for grief or loss. Um, uh, you could have one for, um, I mean, financial 
challenges. That's another component that is that is still, you know, as well as mental health, I think that's stigmatized as well. So to come in and say I'm struggling financially, yet you're paying me a salary, and and how do I navigate through those things? Um, uh, so, but if you don't have something that lists reasons or why it's okay to come and talk to or to disclose to whoever it is about whatever that situation may be, then it comes back to your point earlier on about about legitimacy of, of being able to, to do that because if there's a list of things that you can talk about and the thing you want to talk about isn't on that list then it's like well can I talk about that thing I'll talk mm. about that thing so one of the ways that um that I've tried to get around it in uh, in my organization is I, I talk about um physical mental and emotion physical mental emotional and financial well-being are key aspects of what um makes workplaces better and helps people um, enrich their lives in whatever way that may be and making it really clear that anyone who works for or with me and my organization um, we want to talk about it we you know yeah. I've got like a, a, gu- a guidebook thing that says it might be uncomfortable it might be hard but they're the conversations that matter so if you or someone else is struggling with their own physical mental emotional financial well-being please share it at the earliest opportunity. We might not be able to fix it, but if we can help and assist, we will. Um, and, but we trust that you know your well-being better than anyone else. And so um, you need to take the actions that you can do to support it. Um, but we also trust that if you're struggling, you'll check in and say, I'm finding whatever this thing is tricky. Um, and, and not necessarily needing to disclose exactly what it is, but um, but disclosing that there's a thing that's happening, and that thing is tough, and I could do with X. Yeah, I think that's and it. I'm not, guar- I'm not guaranteeing that we can give you X, but if you let me know what you can do with, then we can talk about what it might be. So that how, how, you know, in terms of how we can help. Yeah, I think that that's that is a really nice approach because it is then it's it's almost asking for the solution that that person thinks will be useful for them it doesn't matter i suppose to an extent um, i think you've got to be careful that you know obviously there are protected characteristics under the equality act so if somebody yeah, yeah. has got a disability or if they've got maternity you know there might be particular things that you have to do but i love this idea that you know yeah we're not we've not got a, a master list it's it's just in both of our interests so we want to support you and we appreciate that if we can support you in a way that enables you to still be productive then it's in the business interest as well which i think maybe mm. helps with legitimacy as well you know if people realize that if i'm asking for support to make me able to do my job and it might not even be you know if i'm, I'm needing a bit of a workload relief right now in order to sustain my productivity to, to stop me spiraling down you know some people could end up in some sort of yeah. crisis if they're not supported so it's, it's like an investment in the future for for the employee but mm. for the business as well i think there's a the kind of the business case argument behind supporting people probably works on people as well in terms of feeling yeah if i do ask for a bit of support now and i go with a solution that you know i think might work um mm. i'm not i'm not being cheeky you know and it, if, if it is something that's communicated to every, you know if everybody knows of those four principles or however many it was in your emotional your, your physical your yeah. financial um then it doesn't mean that i'm this odd case i'm this special person needing you know something special it's it's well no this is a philosophy that we do for everybody and you know it's, it becomes a, a, is it a psychologically safe culture um you know where, where, where people feel more able to to, to talk 
I saw something recently, and I've not read the book yet because I don't think it's out yet. But um, there's a, a book called The Whole Person Workplace, um, and I think that's really nice because that kind of chimes with that that you know you are a whole person at work. You're not just this this ideal worker who's just you know the only thing they've got in there in their life is is just the job and they're unencumbered by anything else and they can just be productive all the time. But this idea that you are a whole person, you bring that whole person to work, um, and if if your workplace respects everybody as as whole people, then Maybe, you know, everyone is happier and more productive. Yeah, well, we I'll definitely put a link to um I'll definitely put a link to it in the uh, in the show notes, even if it's a pre order um even if it's a pre order link. Yeah, I'll, so I'll send I'll it. Put a link into that. Thank you. That'd be really good. Um, okay. Um, I think. Um, I think I want to bring us together and, and close us off, um, Crystal, if that's okay. Um, before I do, is there something else that you might be thinking, something else that you're feeling, or something else that you want to say before I do? Um, yeah, I think just in all of the stuff that I'm researching, there's a lot of the time the focus is on the line manager, of how you know the line manager, the skills that the line manager mm. needs to support somebody um, and I think there's a lot of pressure on the line manager um, and quite often they've not they've not had the training necessarily but more than that that they they their, their job roles in terms of their their pressures to hit targets and um, the amount of finances that they have it line managers can often want to be really rhythm intelligent managers or happy supportive managers or whatever but if they've not got the infrastructure behind them to to allow them to do that it can be really difficult. So it's not just about them being trained. They definitely absolutely need training on all of this stuff. They need to know what the policies are, um, what the you know, the legislation is around this, what they can and can't do. Um, they need awareness of some of these non, non-work non issues that people might be going through. Um, but also they need to be encouraged to do that themselves. So are they being rewarded? Are your managers rewarded for being good managers? Um, they need to have the budget to do it so that if they're going to, you know, say somebody doesn't have to hit the targets for this time because we're going to take a bit of your work off you, we're going to take a bit of your hours off you, or we're going to give you some special leave or whatever it is. Who picks up that work? If you're not pushing it on to other people who then, quite often the single people <laughs> with the, without the children, um, you know, if, if they're going to, you know, they can't do it themselves, the managers, you know, so if they've not been budget for an extra headcount or the, the okay to say that certain targets can be dispensed with or um, postponed or whatever, um, you're quite often asking a very, very lot of your line managers and I think their their well being and their emotions, you know, their if we're exposing them to things like trauma and mental health problems and, you know, very upsetting fertility journeys potentially and, and all, all manner of other things, grief, they need support as well. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we quite often um as, as or I, I feel as well, like as academics, it, you know, we can write papers and we can make observations about what people need. But in the real world, there can be other factors that are, are at play there. And I think, you know, we, we can't always ask line managers or expect line managers to be able to, to handle this very well um, mm. if they're not supported as well. That was it. That was, that was, that was all I wanted to say there. Really. Oh, that was good. That was good. Thank you. Okay. Um, so we've mentioned, um, we've mentioned a book and we've mentioned... Um, a few different research papers on rhythm intelligence and uh, and some of the research that you've done uh, as well. 
Uh, are there any other kind of books or videos or um, yeah, research papers, art- research papers or articles that you would recommend for people to have a look at? Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> not off the top of my head. Yeah, no, I think I've mentioned no, most fine. of the. Yeah. yeah, that's fine. And so, if something comes to mind, then um, uh, let me you know, either include them in the links that you emailed across, or or let me know at a later date, and we can always update the show notes. Um, uh, afterwards as well. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's all right. I no, did have. Pre- I had prepared for that question and I wrote a few, but we've mentioned all of them. So. Ah, um. oh, no, that's good. That's all good. That, well, that means we've had. That means if we've mentioned them all, that means that we've included all the really important stuff. So that's mm-hmm. a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, is there anyone or someone in particular that you would recommend that we seek out to get as a guest on this podcast? Um, well, I'd, I'd, I had. We had this chat in the, in the briefing, didn't it? I would have absolutely said Sarah mm. Jane Lenny, but um, yes, I believe we've already had. Yeah, we've had, we've had her on for episode two. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can get. We can. We can certainly work to get her back on. Yep. Yeah, I mean Scott ba- Ben Ben Base, and I can't even say his. I've never met him. I've just seen him online. Um, Scott, it's B E H S O N Bears, and he's the guy that's written the whole person workplace that I can't okay. wait to read. So um, you know, he might have more to say on that. Um, okay. And yeah, that Caroline Gatchell's done loads on maternity management and and silence and and not being able to talk about things in the workplace around from from the perspective of of working mothers and pregnant women. Um, but okay. yeah, there's, there's, I, could, I could go on a list of all the people that I know that done anything on emotions. Yeah, no, that's. That, that, I mean, there's a colleague good. of mine at, at MMU who's done um, a research project on blame, blame in the workplace. Um, just okay, a whole emotional yeah. blame. But um, I was going to email him between speaking to you and today, um, but he doesn't work on Fridays and Mondays, so um, that didn't bother. Okay. <laughs> well, so so please, so please, yeah. So uh, that would be really interesting. Yeah. So um, yeah. So he's Professor Ben Lupton, and he had um, a, a senior research assistant as well on it. Who you know, one of those two? Okay. All right. We can do that. Uh, all right. And if people wanted to find out more about your research, then um, what would be a good way uh, to get hold of you if they wanted to ask you something more? Um, so Twitter or LinkedIn, or we do have a project web page for the fertility study, um, okay. which has got some interesting stuff on there. Actually, we're doing something called Ethnodrama, which is um, we've, cre- we've got a creative consultant who has um, been, we've talked, we've given her the key themes from our research, but we've also hmm. um, given her some of the raw data. And we're doing like little scenes, like little vignettes. Um, yeah, nice. For, for use in training materials and stuff. So there's a couple of them, we've got a couple of those as, as audios on our website as well. So, okay, well I'll put links to all three of those then uh-huh. into, uh, into the show notes as well. Fantastic. All that's left then is to say, uh, Crystal, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating, fascinating, um, uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed both finding out all about your research and some of the wider uh, literature as well. So yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been really, really cool. Thank you. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast. And if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace, either within individuals, between people in teams or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk. Thanks for listening.